Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Why don't we just um, pause for a moment before we come around God's word and then pray together. Should we do that? Let's pray. Father, we, um, we come into this building with uh, a huge variety of different thoughts in our hearts. We come out of joyful weeks and sorrowful weeks. We come with questions. We come with enthusiasm. We come with pain and we bring it to you because you're God. And we trust you as we serve you. So Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. And in these moments, would you speak to us? Would you speak to our hearts? Weirdly, Father, we trust you also for our world. And even though we see pain and trauma and war and the disgraceful activities of human hearts and lives, we, we ask you, to intervene and bring your peace. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you speak to our hearts? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, it would be amazing if you turn to the Acts of the Apostles and chapter nine. And uh, if you're not used to the Bible, if you kind of go to the end, to maps, and then back through Revelation, and you're going into the New Testament, you'll find the Acts of the Apostles about seven-eighths of the way through, that's complicated, isn't it? About seven-eighths of the way through your, your Bible. Um, and so it goes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Acts. And the Acts really is, it's a history. It's a history of what God is up to in his church. It's a history of the fact that God is alive and he's doing something. And he's alive in his church and he's making a difference. And, uh, and so we've been doing that over the last few weeks. We've been in a series that we've called Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. We've been taking a look at what it looks like to be the church of Jesus Christ because the church has got really bad press out there. So what does it actually look like to be the church? What does it look like to act like the church? What does it look like to behave like the church? And we've been talking about how the church grows exponentially. The church grows. Let me do a little bit of history uh, with you before we get into the scripture. In, In Jerusalem, AD 30, about Jesus died on the cross. Resurrected on the third day and then he ascended into heaven. And, and 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles, giving them power, purpose, and a plan. The church was born. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter gives his first sermon. And when Peter preaches his first ever sermon, 3,000 people were transformed. Their hearts were changed. Peter and John then continue to spread the good news about Jesus preaching uh, and and performing miracles and the church grew by 5,000 more people. That's called church growth. In uh, AD 31, Stephen gave a powerful sermon that so upset people that the crowd stoned him to death, making him the first Christian martyr. Around AD 34, on the road to Damascus, the Lord transformed the heart 
of a man called Saul. We'll read about him in just a moment. Saul became Paul. In AD 44, King Herod Agrippa I executed the apostle James and had Peter arrested, but an angel rescued Peter, leading him out of prison. As the believers were scattered because of persecution, because you either loved Jesus or you hated Jesus, you either loved the church or you hated the church, you weren't indifferent to the church. As the believers were scattered, the center of operations for this new movement of Jesus moved from Jerusalem to a place called Antioch. And in Antioch, the Holy Spirit sent out Paul and Barnabas and these apostles to start to tell about Jesus all over the known world. Paul started something that's become known to us as the missionary journeys. And he went through the Near East and then on into Europe declaring Jesus. When he reached Rome, he had his head chopped off, probably. And he died. Acts 28 ends. But the gospel doesn't stop. The history of what God is doing doesn't stop. In AD 80, Christianity spread further to the countries of France and randomly Tunisia. 20 years later, the first Christians were reported in Algeria and Sri Lanka. By AD 150, the gospel had reached Portugal and Morocco, and Christianity found its way to Austria in AD 174, followed by Switzerland and Belgium. By about AD 313, 50% of the known world was following Jesus. That's crazy, isn't it? 50% of the known world following Jesus. About 200 years after that, Pope Gregory I sent Augustine of Canterbury and a team of missionaries to present-day England. Within the first year, they baptized 10,000 people. In AD 635, the first Christian missionaries arrived in China. In AD 740, Irish monks brought the gospel to Iceland. Christianity was probably introduced to what is now southern Scotland during the Roman occupation of Britain. It was mainly Celtic missionaries from Ireland, St. Ninian, St. Kettigan, and St. Columba. And you'll know some of the history of how the church then grew and diversified. We call it diversified, it was splits often. And different organizations came, the Presbyterians, Episcopals, then Baptists, and then Methodists, and then, and then just over 100 years ago in a place called Azusa Street in San Francisco, the Holy Spirit came in power upon a group of very ordinary people and the Pentecostal movement was started and began to grow. It's incredible. It's an incredible miracle that you're here today with that kind of history, starting with a guy who called himself the son of God, who at the age of 33 probably died on a Roman cross. Something happened in Bethlehem. A baby was born, the savior of the world. Something happened in Jerusalem. That baby set his face towards a cross and he died and three days later he rose again from the dead and they said it was because of the sins of the world, the mess of your and my lives. Something happened on the road to Damascus when a guy who hated Jesus met Jesus and his life turned around. Something happened in a place called Philippi where that same guy suddenly twigged that not everyone hangs out in synagogue, but everyone's in a family. Let's take the gospel to everybody. 
and something had changed. I want to spend just a few minutes, maybe more than a few minutes, taking a look at that passage of scripture I mentioned in Acts chapter 9 and taking a look at what it means to have an encounter with Jesus and how that changes everything. It changes the way in which you think. It changes the way in which you act. And it has the opportunity to change the world all around you. You up for that? About a quarter of you. Brilliant. I'll work with that. Acts chapter 9. Let's open up the scriptures and, and let's read about the Apostle Paul. Do you know, the fascinating thing for me is that um, the church at Holy Corner that we used to meet in was built in 1872. And uh, it, was, uh, it was built as a free church. But the free church became so popular, it outgrew that building and had to build a, another building about 150 yards up the road. It's now the Churchill Theater. Um, for them to meet in. And the Baptists thought, this is a good idea, we'll buy that building. And Morningside Baptist Church was founded. It cost them 8,000 pounds in 1894. That's an awful lot of money in 1894, I imagine. And the church has grown, the church has developed, and the church has had new ideas, and pastors have come, and pastors have gone. And about 10 years ago, Nikki and I came, and, and the church began to grow again. And the church which had about 200 and something people then began to grow and, and then we started meeting at the Braid Center and, and then we had two services, one up at Holy Corner and one at the Braid Center and if you went to the Braid Center you remember how flipping cold it was and we had those, those blast heaters all the, you know, all the time and, and then God grew us to a group of about 600 and then we bought this building and God blessed us with this building and and you know, we've, we've had our peaks and our troughs and now we're a church of about 750 with about 30 missional communities and God is still building his church. Do you know that today in the world there'll be over 500 new churches planted? Just planted. While I preach, there'll be about 500 new churches planted. It's incredible. God's up to something. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. In, in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, 
I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much you must suffer for my name. And Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I want to take you to this passage because this is kind of a pivotal moment in world history. There was an an advert, I think it was for a car a few years ago, which claimed that the average human being, whatever the average human being looks like, I really don't know, but the average human being has about 12,367 thoughts in a day. I don't know why you would prefix 12,637 with about, because it's pretty specific, isn't it? I mean, you're going to have those kind of thoughts. And you have these thoughts running through your head all the time, over 12,000 of them in any given day, depending upon your intelligence levels. You have this stuff going on, and some of those thoughts are pretty trivial. You know, what am I going to eat for dinner? Did we put the oven on or whatever it is? And some of those thoughts are not trivial at all. But they're the kind of things you never want anyone else ever to know. And there are other thoughts that are actually profound and life-giving, and they're going to change everything. You have all these thoughts going on. We're going to meet a, a very, very intelligent guy called Saul who had a thought about a man called Jesus. And the thought was pretty simple. The thought was that Jesus was trouble. Jesus was a problem. I mean, Saul was a, was a radical He was a traditionalist radical, like a conservative terrorist. I don't know what one of those looks like, but if you can imagine, it's kind of, you're going to say no really aggressively. He's that kind of guy, serious. And we know about Saul from the scriptures because he describes himself. He says he was religious. He describes himself as blameless according to the law of Moses. Now, if you know anything about the law of Moses, if you've grown up in church and are biblically dangerous enough and you know anything about the law of Moses, you know that if you can say you're blameless according to the law of Moses, you're almost perfect. I mean, there were 300 laws and there were 300 precepts and you had to keep these things and you couldn't do that things and you could do these things and you just had to be very, very careful about everything you did, everything you breathed, everything you said, everything you touched. And Saul is religious. He's serious and he's devout, and he's angry about Jesus. Because Jesus is trouble. Things had gotten out of hand. This rabbi had showed up, and he, he talked about God as if he knew God and had a relationship with God, but he threw hand grenades into the establishment world. He was like deconstructing God, and it was frying their minds. What do I do with this guy? And so they dealt with him combination of Jewish hierarchy and Roman authority, and he was dead, crucified. And then something that happened. Three days later, they claimed that he was alive, that he walked. 
And if that don't mess with your head enough, his followers had grown. Well, like exponentially they'd grown and they claimed healings and they claimed encounters and they'd grown not just in numbers but in influence and many other people were following and there was real danger that the very institution on which Saul had based his life was gonna be undermined and it just wasn't gonna work. So Paul had some thoughts about Jesus and uh, some thoughts about Jesus' followers. They needed shut up. They needed dealt with. And so he, he gave his life for that. That was his job. He was like the temple enforcer, the religion police. And he finds himself fighting for the religion of his fathers. And little does he know that what he's actually fighting against is the very God he's claiming to defend. As if God needs defended by any of us. But that's what religion does, doesn't it? It does what appears to be a noble thing in a deeply ungracious way and hopes that somehow the ends will justify the means. Do you know, it's, sometimes it's very easy to be sincere and zealous, but be sincerely wrong and zealous about the wrong things. It's so easy for the church of Jesus Christ to end up condemning and judging everything. When they're representing a God whose DNA is love. It's so easy for the church of Jesus Christ to be defined by what we're against rather than what we're for, what we're mending, what we're healing, what we're involved in. And Saul is near Damascus. I wonder what you think about Jesus about church, about this. And the reason I ask that is because it, it, it's fundamentally important what you think. Because the thoughts of your mind dictate the actions of your body. And the actions of your body lead to the outcomes of your life because your brain is a leader. And, and, and this thought, if you're really honest, it's the biggie. I mean, it's re it really is the biggie, potentially bigger than any of the 12,000 other thoughts you're gonna have. At the top of the list of the three billion things you could possibly think, what you think about when you think about God is fundamentally important because this is God. And if he, if he exists, he's not only the most important being in the universe, but if the scriptures are to be taken absolutely seriously, you and I are created in his image and we never ever find out who we are or what we're for unless we discover what he's about and what he's for and we never find our security unless we find it in his house because that's home for us and we never find our purpose outside of the creator because we're a creation and he created us with reason and we never really find the love that we're supposed to find in life because he's the source of love and we run away from him. And we, and we never find wisdom that we need for life because we're banking on a whole stack of other stuff that is not wisdom because we're not standing on the word of God because we don't know who God is. So what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing that you ever think. And Saul is gonna arrest Jesus' followers. 
when Jesus arrests him with a bright light from heaven, which we shouldn't be surprised by because just a few months earlier, Jesus shows up in the temple in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles where the great chandeliers are lit to, ce to celebrate the festival. And the moment they're lit, he stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. If you want to walk in light and not in darkness, you walk with me. And Jesus' light arrests Saul and stops him in his tracks. And suddenly all his principles, and suddenly all his perspectives are shown up for what they really are. Because Jesus is alive. Saul has a thought about Jesus. I wonder what are yours? What, what do you think about when you think about the most important thing that you ever think about? If that's not too complicated. Saul has a thought about Jesus. And here's the thing, God knows how to get your attention. Because he's God. He knows who you are and he knows what you're about and he knows what you think and he knows why you're here because he's God. He knows what your stuff is and he knows what your past is and he knows what your pain is and he knows why you seek him because he's God. He knows why, the, why you've run from this stuff and he knows why church has hurt you and he knows why religion has damaged you because he's God and he grieves. God loves you so much that he's gonna do all he can to get your attention. I think God sets Saul up. It's the greatest setup in history. And Saul's religious, so he knows about God. Saul's been trained under Gamaliel, so he knows a lot about God. Saul was there when Stephen was stoned, so he knows what this guy thinks about God. And Saul is about to go and get the very Christians, the very people who are following Jesus. God's just set him up. If you were a Pharisee and you were a religious Pharisee, you were deeply into meditation and mysticism. And almost certainly on any trip you did, you would meditate the whole time. You'd think about God. And what you would think about, if you possibly could, was what does God look like? What is he really like? Because you couldn't ever see God. And so you try and get as close to God as possible. The most favorite passage for Pharisees to meditate upon was Ezekiel chapter 1, which if you ever read it, if you never read the Bible, don't start with Ezekiel chapter 1. But Ezekiel chapter 1 is freaky stuff. It's like wheels and living creatures and, and, and all this kind of color and flame. And it's, and, and it's supposed to be the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And so the Pharisees would meditate on this. What does this look like? How does this look? And you can bet that Saul is on this trip on his, on his horse with no one around. He's not got a smartphone. He's got nothing else to do. He's not tweeting anything or Instagramming any pictures. He's thinking about God. What does God look like? What does God look like? Can I see God? And then Jesus shows up. Because he is duty bound by his love to get your attention. That's what he's doing. I don't know how he's gonna do it. Maybe he's bringing people into your life. Maybe he's drawing you by grace. I think God's like a romancer or a lover. You know, Nikki won't thank me for telling you this, but when we first met, I was kind of blown away. I mean, honestly, you know, when you... When you find someone who's out of your league, who actually likes you, nail the deal quickly, basically. <laughs> so honestly, 
I was just, I'm, I was desperate. You know, I, I, I'm, most of you, I know what that's like, Paul. But I was just desperate, and I was so keen. I wasn't desperate, understand? <laughs> but I was very keen. And, uh, and so I found, she lived just around the corner from me. I found every opportunity to run past that house, walk past that house, drive past that house, find out where she worked, hang around. It was kind of the original stalking dating technique. It was just desperate. And, you know, I know it may sound ir- irreligious and irreverent, but I think God's a bit like that. He is, he is desperate for you. And he's going to find every way he can to bump into you. He's going to find every way he can to jog past your house. He's going to find every way he can to bring circumstances into your life so that he might draw you because he has already moved heaven and earth to love you. He sent his only son into the world to be born in Bethlehem, to die in Jerusalem, to rise again from the dead. He poured out his Holy Spirit because he wants to get to know you because he loves you and he has a plan for your life. So he's gonna get you somehow. Circumstances, joy, pain, people, even a gathering like this. And maybe he'll get you ordinary ways. Maybe he'll have to knock you off a horse, but he knows how to get your attention. Saul meets Jesus and his thoughts change about Jesus. Of course they do, because Jesus is alive and he's talking to him. Of course his thoughts change. And he, he's not the only one who's met Jesus alive. You know, Mary met Jesus alive from, from the tomb. And, and okay, so she was a bit emotional because she was just an emotional person and she met Jesus. And so you can't really count her testimony. But then Thomas met Jesus and he's not emotional at all. He's wanting proof and evidence. He's the original scientist. You know, show me, but wounds and all that kind of stuff. And Paul, Peter, he meets, he meets Jesus. Two of them on a the road to Emmaus, who weren't expecting it, they met Jesus. 500 at one time, they met, they met Jesus. You know, millions of people down through the years in difficult situations and easy situations have met Jesus and said, you know what, I'm living my life for him because he's changed everything. And if I would shut up for just a moment and brought a microphone around here, there are hundreds of you in the building today with different stories and different pace and different testimonies that would say, I've met Jesus. He changed me. You know, I was walking in one direction and I met Jesus and there's no way that I can do anything other than follow Jesus because he is real and he's alive. And he's, Rachel's gonna give her testimony in just a bit and she's gonna say, this is real. It's just stuff, you know, it's just stuff. I met Jesus, he's alive. And he's Lord. He's Lord. The passage tells us that Saul meets Jesus and the first thing he says is Lord. And if you've read the Bible a few times, you'll know that's a pretty normal word, but if it's not a very normal word. Because in the, in the Greek, the word is kurios. It means governor, boss, ultimate decision maker, leader of the universe. Jesus, Lord. These, these questions are really important because he's Lord. Because right now he is conscious, active head over all things. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way, but it's true nonetheless. That he, in Iraq and in Syria and in Israel and in Gaza and in your financial crisis and in your relationship breakup and in your sickness and in your cancer, 
And in you, I don't know and I don't understand and I can't work. He's still Lord. Conscious, active head, working his purposes out. And he's alive in his church, which is a really weird thing to say. But Saul is out to bury the church. That's what he's doing. He's trying to get rid of the church because it's really irritating and it's not right. And, it's, and Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul would have been perfectly within his rights to say, ooh, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting the guys who are doing the stuff in your name. But Jesus, no, 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 it doesn't work that way because I am completely indivisible from my church. You persecute my church, you persecute me. You find my real church, you find me. And here we got a problem because most of, most of Scotland doesn't like church. And to be honest, between just the two of us, I don't blame them. Because so often the church hasn't looked like Jesus very much. And when people stand up like me and say, Jesus and the church, indivisible, you can't divide Jesus from the church. Actually, when you look at it, it's a piece of nonsense because when you look at the way in which the church acts and the way what the church preaches and the way in which the church behaves, you think, really? And I find myself so often having to apologize. And I want to do again, so again today. If, if in any situation, this church or any other church has not looked like Jesus, then we're deeply sorry. Because we're supposed to be the hands and feet and mouthpiece of Jesus. We're supposed to be the hope of the world. And every single time we become hypocritical and judgmental and anti-gay and Islamophobic, and every time we represent things that aren't actually Jesus, it's an affront to the name church. And every single time we, we operating out of fear become angry rather than operating out of love become angry, which is the way it should be. And we don't represent Jesus. We're just really sorry because that's what it's about because Jesus is alive and he's Lord. And this is his church. And he's still got a plan for his church and he's still building his church. And it's still the hope of Scotland and the hope of the world. That's what he's about. I wonder what you think when you think about Jesus. Let me just, before, before I, I do shut up, let me talk to the already convinced for a moment. Those of you here and you've been here lots and you're already convinced, you've met Jesus and you counted Jesus and if I brought a microphone around, you'd say, yeah, yeah, I've met Jesus. He's changed my life. This is my story of Jesus. Let me just talk to you for a moment. Jesus alive and Jesus Lord is supposed to change stuff for us. I mean really deep stuff for us. We're supposed to not be the same again because we encountered Jesus. If you encounter Jesus for the first time today, let me tell you what's, what's supposed to happen. You're supposed to stop living with you at the center of your world. Because it's not the way you're created and it doesn't work anyway. You're supposed to live with him at the center of the world and everyone else then gets blessed. You're supposed to stop holding your stuff like this and hold your stuff like this because you're not called to be an owner of anything. You're called to be a manager of all God's stuff. 
If you start following Jesus and you encounter Jesus today, you're gonna get ruined for the ordinary things. Because he's an extraordinary God who does incredible things. He's a God who still heals people today. He's a God who still forgives people today. He's a God who still restores stuff today. You're gonna get ruined for all the stuff that's ordinary because he's extraordinary. Everything's gonna change. And you're gonna embark on an adventure, the adventure of your life, which is a collision of what God has said and what God is saying, what God is doing, and what God wants to do with your life and through your life. It's gonna be incredible. Stuff is gonna change. And you're gonna join a family. That's what this is supposed to be. The, the apostle Paul, who's the guy that comes out of Saul, just does this name change thing. He, he, he gets included in the family that he was about to kill. Isn't that weird? You know, so, so he's about to kill these guys, he's gonna wipe them out, exterminate them, and within like minutes, this guy who was breathing out angry threats, it, well, everything in his heart was anger and violence and he's being embraced and taught and trained and nurtured by this family. Guys, this, is, this church thing is not an event that we come to. I mean, this is, I love this. Where else do you get to speak at people who don't answer back for about half an hour? Oh, you do answer back, I know. But you know, honestly, I love this, but this is, this is only part of what we do. This is an event that's supposed to provoke everything. This, this is for that and all that stuff, you know? No, this, is just a, this is just the halftime team talk in the football match where we, come on. It's not an event and it's not a, it's not a club that you have a membership of. You don't get a card and pay your dues and have your rights. This is a family. But we're growing up, we're knocking bits off each other because that's incompatible with Jesus. We're trying, to, we're trying to grow to look more like Jesus, to represent him more. We're trying to be the hands and feet and mouthpiece of Jesus in this world. We're trying to make a difference in Edinburgh and Scotland and beyond. We're trying to plant churches, but we're trying to do so as family. This is not a project. We're the project. This is family. And it's hard. Ananias says, I don't want to go to, I want to go and see this guy. He might kill me. And then um, God says, yeah, just go. He said, I will show Saul what he must suffer for my name. Wow. That doesn't sound like good news, does it? You know, come into this encounter with Jesus, get into the family, and then you have to suffer. Well, yeah, of course, because anything worth having involves suffering, doesn't it? Yeah, nothing that's worth having doesn't involve pain and grief and tears and sorrow and fighting for it. And Jesus says, when you find a pearl of great price, you sell everything you've got in order to buy that pearl because it's worth it. Suffering. If you find treasure in a field, you give up everything to get the field so you can get the treasure out of the field. It's suffering. I'm going to show you what you must suffer. Have you met Jesus? I mean, he's amazing. Have you, have you ever encountered Jesus? Because what will happen, I'll tell you, all your, all your 
stuff and all your reasons for and all your living your life in this way, it'll, it, it'll pale into insignificance alongside Jesus and what he does. He wants to meet you. You know, the cool thing is this, that when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, he had you in mind. Isn't that a cool thing? I mean, let me explain. When he, met, when he did this thing on the horse and you know, knocked off and all that blind stuff, he had you in mind. He thought, you know, what's going to happen is, is, that, is that Paul is going to go to Philippi and he's going to realize that the church needs to be in households and he's going to, and 50% of the Roman Empire, and then we're going to get Augustine, he's going to go to Canterbury, and then the, the, the Irish monks are going to do that thing, and then we're going to set the thing in there, and then you are going to find yourself in an encounter with Jesus. That's how it's going to work. So I'm going to knock Saul off the horse now so that we can make this thing work. Because he loves you. And he knows the only way to live life is in a relationship with him. And he has a plan. Have you met Jesus? What do you think about him? Because what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing you ever think about. Let's pray together, shall we? Jesus still meets people. Meets people in India and Africa and Scotland and coffee shops and work and even in places called churches. Meets people. And Jesus sets people up for encounters with him because he's the ultimate romancer. It just might be today that this is one of those moments when you meet Jesus. So I'm just going to allow an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to... Well, here's, here's the thing. The preacher can preach and you can be amused, annoyed, disinterested, or whatever. But there comes a moment when the word of God is opened up, when God speaks to hearts, and you know, you know he's speaking because, well, it's different quality. It's almost like um, the preacher was preaching in mono, and the Holy Spirit just went stereo. Or the preacher was preaching in black and white, and you just got it in HD. God speaking and Jesus wants to encounter you it's a bit freaky but it's also very normal so Holy Spirit would you come would you introduce us to Jesus because we believe that would change everything would you introduce us to Jesus and if you are being introduced to Jesus right now and if I've been speaking, you've been searching for Jesus. And then I think one of the ways in which you can meet him properly is, why don't you just in your heart pray a simple prayer to him, talk to him. I'll lead you in some words. You can pray it 
You can pray quietly if you want. Jesus, I want to know you. I know that living outside of you doesn't work. So would you come into my heart and would you be my friend and my leader? I'm sorry for when I've ignored you or even persecuted you. But from this day onwards, in whatever way I possibly can, I want to walk with you because you bring meaning to life. And I pray this in your precious name, Jesus.